Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets, where a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. So, as you can hear from my voice, I'm sure, or perhaps, um, I'm a little under the weather this week. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've been hacking and coughing. and Sounding awful. Yeah, it's so bad that the echo can't doesn't recognize me. And so it's the same with Siri. Who's speaking? It's me. Don't you recognize me? You've known me for years. I'm hurt. They're yeah. supposed to recognize your voice? They do recognize your voice. I didn't know that that was a feature. Yeah. Well, that's why when we came home and I told the echo to turn off guard, Amazon guard, mm-hmm. um, it wanted the voice password. Because it didn't think you were it, you. It thought it was, I was a stranger trying to turn it off. You won't fool me. I'm sorry. I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> okay, then. It started beeping and everything. It was very loud. Yeah, it was like, it's going to deject us into space. <laughs> I was very worried. I was going to go and plug it, but I was afraid it would start singing Daisy. Daisy, Daisy. Okay, enough 2000 and uh, whatchamacallit, a space odyssey references. One, 2001. I, I cannot remember numbers Which to save is my life. 21 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. It is kind of bizarre. Hey, but we do have the video chat, like, which was one of the things that impressed me in that movie. Yes. Um, except ours is much cooler. Like, we don't have to have that gigantic console. I remember him. Like, With a very tiny screen. Yes. <laughs> uh, we so, we yeah. have even cooler you have better video chat. Who who to thunk? Who to thunk it? Yes. So um, the only other thing that we really got done this week was because, you know, sick and lots of appointments uh, is you got a bee in your bonnet on Saturday. Well, Friday, you you told me. I have been feeling it for a while, but yeah, I I finally got fed up. You informed me on Friday that you first you asked. Are you recording on Saturday? To which I said, no. And you said, well, we're going to the beach. Uh, I know it's November in New England. I was willing to go for a walk in the woods, but um, some certain people prefer the beach. Which some of the kids prefer the beach. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's hard to get them uh, moving at all. The inertia is strong. The inertia is strong with this these ones. So, yeah, the the beach seems to be like, I don't know. I think that they, well, the fact is they probably do get a lot, away with less walking when we go to the beach than like when we go through our hike in the woods and I, you know, make them slog for miles. So, yes. And there's less anxiety, I think, because you can see where you're going, how far you're going. Where you've been. Yeah, I think some of them have anxiety about how long we're going to be walking and that sort of stuff. And others getting out of view. That's true. In the beach, nobody can get out of like your line of sight, really. Not really. So 
uh, we were going to go back to Whitehorse Beach in Plymouth, which is where we spent a month or more uh, last year. Uh, but <laughs> when you, you mentioned, I'm like, oh, wait, this is the weekend before Thanksgiving. Probably not a good idea to go to Plymouth. This is this Saturday is when they do the big Thanksgiving Day, par- the Thanksgiving parade in Plymouth. So, no. <laughs> so, I mean, it probably would be okay. Like, Manomet is the other end of Plymouth from where they do the parade. But even then, it's just like probably traffic. I don't know. I was a little worried. Yeah. Well, we were just, I mean, Nantasket's a shorter drive anyway. Right. So we went to Nantasket Beach, which is in the town of Hull, which is just a couple towns over from us. And uh, it's it's a fantastic beach at Nantasket Beach. Ha ha. Ha ha. So, it, is a, it is a fabulous beach. And in the summertime, it's crowded. So I, I don't tend to go there because yeah. it's just summertime. so many people. But, you know, in the fall it's really nice it's well it's a great beach at low tide at high tide there is no beach it's one of those beaches where it's the, the it's very shallow so when the tide comes up it comes all the way to the wall the seawall but when the tide is out it's like a quarter mile it's really yeah. it's really a lot of beach it's true so we managed to time it coincidentally to low tide by sheer luck yeah by sheer luck we We did not look at the tide the tide tables before we left you know last year we were living by the by the beach we we really got to know the tides it's true i i got to the point where i was looking at the tide table every single day and so i got to the point where i could just like almost not need to look at the table like i just kind of just kind of knew when it was going to be high and low tide tide were going to be yeah that, that was so cool so we went down. I'm like I said, I'm a little under the weather, so I wasn't up for a long beach walk. So you guys kind of took off without me a little bit. And I was going to hang in the car and read. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to walk down the boardwalk, which is like the on the seawall. It's a, it's a concrete sidewalk uh, and kind of meet you further down. I was actually going to sneak ahead and and get out to the beach and have you guys catch up to me and go like, how'd you get down here so fast? But the kids saw me and you can't sneak ahead of the kids. You can't sneak ahead of them. But where I was, I, I went there because there's a Dunkin' Donuts across the street from the, that part of the seawall. So I said, hey, let's go get hot cocos, being the best dad ever. It was pretty nice. Yes. So we went across the street and got some hot cocoa. And uh, you guys walked back along the beach, which was With one a- way of keeping this hike short. <laughs> Right. I um, suppose that constrained us. Yeah. I mean, you could have kept going. You just, you guys just kind of came and then walked back. Yeah. I thought about keep, keeping going and then, well, yeah. I'm kind of glad you didn't because. Honestly, I probably would have if I hadn't fallen. Oh, yes. You took a header. Not a header. It's not literally when you fall on your head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a header means you fell down in, uh, in a dramatic way. Okay. You say so. Yeah. So you fell down in a dramatic way. I fell way. down very dramatically. <laughs> um, yeah. I was jogging to get ahead of Lucy because I wanted to get a picture of Lucy on the beach and she had her back to me. And every time I asked her to turn to face me, um, she complained about the sun being in her eyes. So I was jogging to get ahead of her so I could get her in the shot. And there was a jostle of kids and they jostled me over. And you uh, 
banged up your knee, your I wrist. I banged up my knee and my hand. It's it stinks getting old. It does. It really does. <laughs> um, so yeah, my knee was kind of hurting, and I didn't really want to push it too much. So. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of glad you came back because a uh, when I got back to the car, I realized. I kind of need to use the bathroom. I don't want to walk all the way back to Nugget Donuts, so I'm just going to wait till you guys come back. And blessedly, it wasn't that long. Also, it was like one, and I hadn't eaten anything all day, and I was starving. And again, didn't want to walk all the way. I didn't want a donut anyway, like I wanted lunch. Uh, so I'm glad you guys came back to go, so we could go home and have lunch. Um, but it was nice to get out. Uh, I was able to, even with my abbreviated walk, Close my exercise rings on my watch. Meanwhile, I who took the long walk got like one minute of exercise on my watch. Yeah, your watch does not like to credit you with exercise. No, my watch thinks I'm a slug. Well, actually, maybe that just holds you to a higher standard and says, look, this guy got out of bed this morning. We (laughs) should give him all the credit. (laughs) Like this guy's a slug. So, you know, you might as well give him all the credit. (laughs) So. Uh, let's talk about food. Now, obviously this is Thanksgiving week. And so pretty, pretty soon we're going to be all turkey and stuffing talk. But, uh, in the week leading up to Thanksgiving, we had a few interesting dishes. Uh, there was a dish I would, I had gotten a recipe for, and I was like, Oh, this looks interesting. I want to try it sometime. And now that I feel comfortable going to the Vietnamese grocery store in the next town over, uh, which I think they're starting to recognize me. Oh yeah. Well, I'm the only non-Vietnamese person I ever see in there. So, um, it, you know, and I the probably the only person I hear speaking English. So uh, that I wouldn't be surprised. But um, there was this recipe for sizzling Vietnamese crepes. And it's they're kind of interesting because they're basically uh, cornstarch, rice flour, and um, water. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's kind of the base of the batter. And what you do is you, you oh, and um, and coconut milk. I forgot the coconut milk. That's all a part of it. So you have some shrimp and some pork that you saute up, and then you have a nuoc cham, which I know I said I butchered, but it's a standard Vietnamese dipping sauce or marinade sauce. It's a, it's based on fish sauce. Uh, chili pepper, sugar, and lime juice. It's, it's a pretty standard um, sauce. And then for the crepes, you have uh, the, the, this batter of uh, water, rice flour, cornstarch, a little bit of turmeric, which I think is mostly for color. Uh-huh. And then uh, you, uh, and then uh, coconut milk. And what you do is, is you take the cooked um, pork and, um, shrimp and you put it in a pan and then you pour batter all like you put that on half the pan and you pour batter all around it and you let the batter cook and then you fold it up sort of like an omelet you fold it on top right and you're supposed to slide out you know and then cut it up it's supposed to be a, you know a kind of substantial thing and i i think my the mistake i was making was is i was not letting it cook long enough because it was it was falling apart. It was turning into a pile. It was like scrambled eggs, basically. And it was kind of doughy tasting. Yeah, they they were not cooked enough. And I think that's what it is. Is like, I guess I was only cooking for like a, a a minute or two. And this says you have to cook it two to four minutes. And I just kept felt feeling like this is 
like cooked, but it wasn't. It, it was I was fooling me. However, everybody agreed. Everybody liked the f- taste. The flavor was really good. Yeah, I was actually surprised at how many of the kids ate it and liked it. Yeah. I was expecting a lot more resistance to this looks weird. What is this? I'm not going to touch it. I think we've trained them. Uh, and it's one of those things where you 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 eat it in a uh, lettuce leaf, like like a wrap. Uh, so it was good. I, and I, I made some some pickled uh, carrot and radish to go along with it, too. And we yes. some like cilantro and basil. Yep. Yep. So. um I mean, I might try it again sometime, anytime soon. But the flavors are good, and I'm I kind of want to figure out what I did wrong and make it work. Now, while I was at the the Vietnamese grocery, I picked up some water spinach, which is a, a Vietnamese uh, vegetable that isn't exactly spinach, but they call it water spinach. But it, it it's a lot like spinach, and I decided to make a. Uh, we we got, used to get it years ago when we went to the Marblehead Farmer's Market when we lived yeah. up in Salem. And there was a Vietnamese farmer, farm family that would come to the market and sell Vietnamese uh, vegetables. And so we tried the water spinach and it was really kind of good at the time. And uh, although I, that water spinach was much younger, it was it was um, more tender and smaller. Uh-huh. This one was more of a sure, which I thought was interesting. Um I suppose that makes sense, probably getting it from different like, yeah. farmer vendors or whatever. And so I want to look up the exactly what I did. Uh, water spinach. Here it is. Uh, so I've, I had this recipe uh, that I was using and that I totally adapted and changed. And I have a new, re- new way of doing it. So you take a bunch of water spinach or you could use regular spinach, too. Uh, it, 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 it'll it work either way. The flavors are, are going to be fine. And so you, um, you can, you take a, uh, in a bowl, you combine fish sauce, soy sauce, oyster sauce. I used palm sugar, which I picked up at the grocery, but you can use brown sugar and you put it in a small bowl and mix it together and, and you set that aside. Then in a wok, you heat up some oil and then you, uh, I used some, I had some, uh, pork left over from the crepes. I had like about four ounces of it. I was using um, country style pork ribs that cut into matchsticks, uh, which works really well. And it's really an inexpensive cut of meat, at least around here. And so I, uh, you stir fry that till it's no longer pink, set it aside. Then I had some onion that I'd sliced up a half of a onion and I threw that in and cooked it until it started to turn translucent. Then I added some garlic, and then I added the spinach and cooked that up for a minute because you just want it to start start wilting. You don't want it to wilt all the way. Then you add the fish sauce mixture, and then um, once the spinach starts to uh, wilt, then you add the pork back in to reheat that. And I had some Thai basil left over that I purchased, uh, you know, with the, for the other recipe and then some cilantro added those off the heat and served. And it was pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, um, it tastes, it was very savory, very, uh, and Bella liked, I think most of the kids, Bella liked it. Sophie liked it. I'm not sure about the others. Uh, I think Lucy might have liked it. I don't think they tried it. Yeah. 
Um, my personal preference is for less fish sauce, but you always want less fish sauce. For less fish sauce. Yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I will cut it back a little bit next time, maybe. I mean, we only had a tablespoon of fish sauce in it, so it wasn't that much. Um, I so. don't really like fish sauce that much. Yeah, I know. I like it when it's when it's not the predominant flavor. I like it when it's like a muted like background note. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not Vietnamese cooking, but <laughs> I know. But I like. I know, I know. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. I'll try to adapt a little bit. I've been cutting back on fish sauce on the various recipes. So uh, that was a pretty good recipe. That came up pretty good. I'm going to try that again. So another thing that came up this week, um, there's a, there's a, on Reddit, if it's, it's a social media site, there's a section called, "Am I the?" Well, in, in delicate word, but I'll just substitute jerk, and where people post personal situations asking for advice basically this is what happened am i the jerk here am i the jerk in this situation and so in this particular one this guy related how he and his girlfriend um, have subscribed to several different cooking websites and have cookbooks and they take turns cooking and he's found that he discovered that when she cooks, she goes off the recipe. She wings it. Oh, I like more of this than that. I, I think they're not putting enough salt in in this recipe. And he got mad because he thinks, she, I know, because, <laughs> yeah, just let me finish it. I'll, we'll say why this is funny. He thinks that these recipes are prepared by culinary professionals and by going off the recipe, you're risking messing up the recipe and wasting food and ruining dinner. And she thinks he's full of it. And but, but my, my 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 question is, has he ever com- like like the, he gave no indication in his story that he'd ever complained previously about any of her food? Like he didn't have any examples of times when she had she messed up the recipe, the food, yeah. or messed up the recipe. In fact, he even admitted that she was probably a better cook than he was. Well, so, she's obviously a better cook than he he right. is because he, she's willing to go with her gut. Well, this is the occasion to discussion that Melanie and I had, which is cooking is as much art as it is science. Anybody who works creating recipes will tell you, and you hear this all the time, like from America's Tiss Kitchen or Food Network or any of these cooking shows or chefs. Or just reading a cook- cookbooks. What's that? Or just reading cookbooks. Or sometimes just reading cookbooks. Like, they'll tell you the amounts that we put down are because we have to put an amount. Like, Somewhere around that is probably okay. There are there are some things you have to be more exact, like in baking. There are certain things in baking, some kinds of baking, where you have to be more exact. But in general, if it's if you put, if it calls for a teaspoon and you put a teaspoon and a half, you're also, probably going to be okay. Right. But also, cooking is about your own personal taste as well. Like I don't really like fish sauce or dill so when a recipe calls for fish sauce or dill i'm likely to substitute or at least you know reduce reduce or or, right like or i like a lot of you know anise in my pasta sauce so i put a lot of anise in my pasta sauce or another thing that's kind of related is you often find that in baking muffins 
there's way too little fat in most recipes. Yeah, they're all low, low fat, even if they don't say they're low fat. Most recipes right. for muffins are low fat. Which makes them dry and inedible. And so when you so, so the reason you so often have dry muffins is because the or, or they, they taste fine the first day, but they don't like then like, the second day they're they're stale already, as opposed to like really good fatty muffins will be good for, you know, a week. Right. And, and so you know, you adjust it for what you want. Like the, oh, uh, we made bourbon chicken again last night, which has become one of our favorite recipes. But the original recipe has no vegetables in it. It's just the chicken. It's like, we want to have vegetables. So I added a bunch of vegetables and I sauteed them up ahead of time and added them in at a particular, you know, step in the process that I figured would be a good uh, step to add it in. And it just worked out. And sometimes it doesn't. It's okay still eat it you know unless it's very rarely is it inedible but you know you you don't have to be you know rigid about recipes you you gotta be flexible you gotta you gotta go with your gut like it almost literally in the sense yeah i mean if you're trying a new recipe and you're not very confident as a cook Going, but you you start with the hard, recipe. It's hard to go wrong by just following it. It's not so much that he is uncomfortable. I mean, the if he wants to cook that way, as a as a sort of a newbie cook, yeah, that that doesn't bother me at all. Like that seems sensible, but it's the idea that they're wasting their money paying for subscriptions if she's not going to follow the recipes slavishly. Right, that's what he said. That seemed like a very weird leap in logic to me. Like he's still using the recipes. So even if like they're, he's cooking 50% of the time and she's cooking 50% of the time, then 50% of the time the recipe is being followed slavishly. So like there, his logic kind of falls apart on its face, but also the way I usually cook is I'll look up two or three recipes for the thing I want to cook. And then I'll follow none of them exactly. But I wouldn't have had an idea of what I wanted to cook if I hadn't looked at those recipes. The recipes are foundation. Right. So right. she's not not using the recipe. She's using the recipe, but she's using it as a, a jumping off point. But she needs the jumping off point. So the idea that, like, if she's not willing to follow it slavishly, then they need to get rid of the subscription altogether because it's a waste of money. Seemed like this was a him problem. Yes, yes. It turns out he was the jerk. So, yeah, it's so it's just to say, you know, to reinforce this idea that you don't need to necessarily follow a recipe exactly written. I mean, our grandmothers never did. They learned how to cook with. Well, I'm enough. not sure. I'm not sure my grandmothers are the best. So. <laughs> yes, I've heard the stories of your grandmothers and their cooking, but like my grandmothers. Or at least my my Sicilian grandmother. It, it was uh, put enough of this in, put put enough of that in. You know, a little, little more if you need to. You know, it it it's the idea the idea that cooking is this exact boom 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 is such a modern thing. It, you know, modern cookbooks. It's not the way. I I love watching the Townsend Channel on YouTube because they do 18th century cooking and the 18th century recipes are like put enough flour in to make it 
correctly yeah, paced. Yeah, paced. older recipe books are interesting because they don't really give amounts. No, just put enough. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's because people understood this is how you cook. Anyway, I'm kind of going on and on. You are. All right. All right. So that's it for uh, cooking stuff. Let's talk about what we've been reading and watching. Uh, so we talked before about watching the first half of the Netflix limited series Inside Man. It's a four episode series. And so we had watched the first two and we now we've watched the second half of it. And so, Melanie, what's your verdict on that? It was so good. It was very good. It was really good. Stanley Tucci is awesome. Uh, Daniel Tennant. David. David. Why do I always want to call him Daniel? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> David Tennant, thank you, is so good. Yeah. Um, really, the whole cast, everybody was great. So so much of it is a bit maddening because so much of what happens revolves around people making dumb decisions. Yes. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Like, just <laughs> constantly yelling at the TV. Why are you doing that? Yeah. Just wh- what are you thinking? Stop. Stop, stop doing that. Just walk away. You know, that and so much of what happened, like this sort of maddening, polite British uh, um, attitude in the midst of a crazy situation. Like, this situation is insane and yet they're still polite and still, you know, speaking to each other in measured tones and still oh so reasonable. And it's like, this is a mad situation. Like you just stop and consider what you're doing. I'm I'm looking forward to the second season, which it seems pretty clear mm-hmm. they're going to do. Well, at least they open the door to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's, more story to tell, even though this was an incredibly satisfying yeah. story. Oh, well, the hook that they left at the end. Yeah. Was kind of like, what? The, one of the things, though, is Stephen Moffat, you, you wrote this and also was a, a showrunner on Doctor Who for a while. It, it, there's a, I don't know, a, I don't know if it's latent or just blatant anti-religious sentiment and maybe it's just british attitude toward you know non-practicing anglican toward anglicans or something along those lines but this a little feels like a little bit of a hostility to faith or at least people of faith or at least seeing them as hypocrites right or at least of the established church or churchy people I mean, it seems to me like a trope that you see not just in Moffat, but sort of in British literature, like the the sort of ineffectual vicar seems to be kind of a a type. Right. So Moffat is kind of playing with that a little bit. So I did cut a bit out of our episode last week, by the way, where I I got a little too spoilery. So Uh um, I did cut that out. But um Again, I don't want to spoil anything, but it was quite remarkable. A a bit of my theory on why it's called Inside Man did not pan out. A, a bit of there was still a bit of the mystery box thing going on too. The mystery box is like the this theory by um oh the guy behind Lost J.J. Abrams that when you have a mystery box, you need 
you you have to keep some of the mystery still in the box at the end. The, the, not all questions should be answered. Right. The, the, the audience should be left puzzling and wanting more. And there's definitely Gosh, they a, do that. That's such a maddening yes. approach. I, um, on the other hand, I don't necessarily disagree. I I sort of like the idea of the story that isn't wrapped up perfectly neatly with a bow right that there's it it feels more true to life that there's some things that we just don't know there's a mystery in this one that doesn't get resolved and i'm and i can see again i can see why it could be part of that like don't wrap it up neatly in a bow leave him guessing but i want to know yeah there's a there's an essential character aspect which will tell you a lot about that character that you just, they just don't tell you. So anyway, it was tantalizing. It is very tantalizing. Um, very dark though. Like th- there, there were, there were some it's, moments that it's a very dark show with there's dark humor in it, but it's also just like sort of a, a bleak look, look at human nature. Yeah. It was not an cheery and uplifting, even though there was oftentimes like very funny moments. Yes. But when they were there, they tend to be dark humor. Yeah, that's true. So from the bleak and not uplifting to the uplifting, uh, let's talk about The Chosen. Uh, Super uplifting. Super uplifting. We finally got around back to watching more of season two uh, with Isabella and Sophia. Uh, We watched episodes three and four. Um, Episode three was very interesting because it revolves around... No, not a specific gospel episode, but around Jesus is healing people. People are coming to Jesus to be healed, and he's having to spend all day healing them. And what we see is sort of behind the scenes, the apostles kind of helping, waiting, taking turns with crowd Crowd control, crowd management, which is a very... Part of that felt a little anachronistic to me. It was very 20th century attitude towards crowd control. Well, in fact, as we was standing in line, we talked about this, which is the the chosen has a lot of 21st century sort of anachronism in it. A lot of the ways of people talking, the ways of people dealing with each other, the situations can feel a little like 22nd century people dressing up in a different period of time. Yeah. And yet I'm not sure that that's entirely, sometimes it's maddening to me. Like the anachronisms do kind of bother me. Yeah. And yet on the other hand, as storytelling, I think that it's similar to Renaissance paintings, which put the biblical figures in Renaissance clothing. I think that, or medieval mystery plays, which have the, biblical figures talking like medieval people. Yes. I mean, I think there is a very long tradition in the church of reinterpreting the biblical narratives to, to our own day. I, I saw one article that actually compared the chosen to fanfic, which. Yeah. Not in a negative way though. Right. No, not in a negative way, but but in fact, it was arguing that, that throughout the history of the church, there's been this long history of, of, fan vicking the gospels so this is not something that's well new in fact much of what we think of as authentically gospel language and way of being and talking and stuff is really elizabethan you know what we think of as 
as traditional biblical you know idiom or way of speaking is Elizabethan because it's the King James. That's the first English, you know, mainstream translation. Um, so it's not even, you know, necessarily all authentic to the original anyway. So that said, the third episode had this really interesting interaction among the disciples and you know, kind of talking about where they come from and their their Jewishness and their expectations that they had about the Messiah. And there was even in um, moments of infighting and attacking, you know, Matthew was a, was a tax collector. Which, which we do know from the Gospels that there was infighting and arguments oh, yeah. about, like, who was the best, etc. I like actually what... The, the show does in terms of pulling that out and letting us see a little bit more of those tensions, the tensions between the Matthew, the tax collector and, um, you know, Peter, the firebrand, uh, you know, hothead. Um, yeah. Well, that and, you know, all this time Jesus is getting wrung out, healing people all day long. And these guys are off to the side bickering. <laughs> about who belongs and who doesn't, who's really faithful, who isn't. And I'm like, look, it's Catholic Twitter. (laughs) I I really liked the depiction of Jesus in this episode. We didn't see him until the very end of the episode, which was interesting. And, you know, the Gospels tell us, make it very clear that Jesus gets tired and needs to go for a rest and he wants to be alone and he's wrung out by the crowds. We, we do see that, but this really brought that to life much more for me. Yeah. Like we see Jesus just. Because Jonathan stumbling with exhaustion. Jonathan Rumi's Jesus is, is probably more down to earth than any other screen Jesus I've seen way more than say, um, Max von Sydow in in the, um, which one was it? I forget which one was. But any of the old ones, like the Zeffirellis or anything like that, or even the Passion of the Christ, probably because he didn't speak English. This Jonathan Rumi's Jesus is more personable and approachable than any other. He feels more grounded in reality, in our reality. Well, and so, more incarnational, really. Yeah. I and mean, I really feel like this is this is the Jesus who became man. It's it's focusing really on his humanity and I ironically by by make by really trying to work to make him feel human, I feel that those moments when you see his divinity shining through are more of a punch than where the Jesus is presented as being sort of ethereal and heavenly, et cetera. It's, it's like he's so down to earth. And then he has that moment where he says something or he does something that like only God could do. And you just get like that shiver up the back of your neck, like the hair standing on end. It's really powerful. Right, right. Uh, also, this episode had Mary. Mary shows up. Yeah. Mary shows up to help minister to the apostles and they all greet her as like their mother which was awesome and then they ask her about jesus's like her experience of being his mother like carrying him and she doesn't spill all she reserves some she in fact says some of that's for another time another time but 
she does talk about there was one line that was especially powerful she said i expected him to be something more and here he was a naked baby and he was cold <coughs> and he was hungry and he needed me and as a mom that really hit me in the gut like he was a small helpless baby who needed her yep and she she knew who he was and she knew that she was necessary in the way that a mother is necessary and that was just like there was something incredibly powerful the actress who plays mary is is wonderful yeah um well i think yeah yeah, pretty much the whole cast is really good and and then the moment where the apostles realized that the jesus's father is dead like the joseph is dead and and they have this like sudden moment of compassion for him like oh we didn't know he lost his dad <laughs> right and you know others of them have lost their uh, parent and right so there's a sort of moment where of like exploring like what does that mean in jesus's humanity to to have had a, a parent die Mm. That's that's another moment of connection where even though he's not actually physically present at that moment, he's off screen, yet his humanity really touches them in a profound way. And it, it makes room for it to touch us, like to to remind us that that's another way he he shares in our humanity, that, that experience yep. of losing a parent. So that was episode three. Episode four is the story of Simon the Zealot um, and and also of the of the, his brother. They, they, so they, they, one of the interesting narrative choices was that they made Simon the Zealot's brother into the lame man by the pool of Bethsaida. Right. Um, who wants to go into the water when the, when the angel stirs it up and um, no, there's nobody to carry him. And so he can't be healed. Right. And so it starts with him as a little boy, the the lame man, and kind of follows them wordlessly through their lives up to the point where Simon goes off to become a zealot, and the and the other brother, Jesse, yeah, they call Jesse, him Jesse, um, ends up by the pool for years. It looks like, oh yeah, like, like more than a decade. And then about halfway through, where we get to the present time, and it's. They're approaching the Feast of the Tabernacles where all the um, all able-bodied men make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. And so Jesus and the apostles are just outside of Jerusalem and preparing. And then Jesus takes Peter, John, and Matthew to the pool to heal this man. Because Simon the Zealot had basically told his brother that um, I will not believe that the Messiah has come until I see you walk. Walk on your own two feet. On your own two feet. Now, there is an interesting gloss on the whole pool of Bethsaida that I had never got before, which was the way they explained it was that it was a pagan pool, like a cult of Asclepius, um, who was the, the Greek and Roman god of healing. And that the it, it explained that the the angel who stirs up the waters was was not this was not explained as a phenomenon of god but that it was a pagan belief that god in fact would not heal in this method i really liked that gloss like god wouldn't heal through making people fight each other compete right for his 
attention for his healing. So only the first one to the middle of the pool when it when it gets stirred up is the one who gets healed. Right. And so I, I liked that. That was something I'd never seen. I don't know how, like, what, what biblical scholars would say about that. But at least in terms of storytelling, that worked really well. Like, it, it explicated a little bit more what's going on theologically in this, like, angel stirring up the waters right. stuff in a way that I thought was much more coherent than my understanding previously. Right. So you have a, this is a bit of a more of an action adventure episode because Simon has been sent to Jerusalem to assassinate a Roman. Um, and so, and Jesus is going to end up circumventing that by healing Jesse. And, and there's a Roman secret police guy, which it's kind of funny. I don't know if the clandestine Roman cops was a thing or not. Um, there I think that there were at times sort of investigators of like, you know, imperial officials. It felt a little anachronistic to me, frankly, yeah. there was the, the Simon the Zealot plot felt a little modern, like sensibilities. Yeah. Well, the training, the, the a lot of that stuff felt like modern military training. I don't think necessarily that the Zealots were this kind of secret rebel cell sort of thing. And yet again, the trans trying to translate into a modern idiom, something about what the zealots were, the idea that they're freedom fighters, the idea that they're fighting against the Romans. I think it worked in terms of bringing a modern reader who doesn't really understand a lot about a viewer rather, who doesn't understand a lot about history to understand the story I think it works. Right. The trick is to make sure that people don't think that this is historically accurate. It, yeah, it's, it's because not. one of the things that can happen is, is people can get fixated on the on the details and say, this is this must be how it actually happened. And he's like, well, no, this is just a story. One way of imagining it, not necessarily the way it happened. Um, which is one of the objections people have to these sorts of programs in movies. But yeah. So um looking forward to watching more and I'm, I'm looking forward to the, there is a nativity episode like the Christmas right. episode in which I bet Mary does end up telling the story. Uh, right. So that should be fun. Um, and season three of the chosen is just dropping this week. I think it is this weekend as in fact um, that dropped. So um, if you are someone who's caught, more caught up than we are, you probably will want to watch that. So we continue to watch Ms. Marvel with the kids. We watched episodes two and three today with them. Yeah, it picks up a lot more. Um, I mean, episode one is kind of just establishing the characters. And I think the kids were not quite as engaged, like we said last week. Yeah. This one, they definitely like we got to the end of episode two. Like, should we watch another one? And there was loud. Yes. Loud insistence <laughs> that we continue watching. So I think that yeah. they're they're now really and truly hooked. Episodes one to three form a block. And then uh, the the how many episodes are there? Six? I don't remember. I forget now. But then there's another block where they go with the, sh- the show moves to Pakistan. Right. And then after that is when it moves back. I think there's eight episodes. Maybe. So it's like three, two, and two, if I remember correctly. 
Is that eight? That is not eight. That is seven. I forget. We'll have to look it up. But in any case, there's like basically three distinct uh, arcs in the in the uh, season, and so it's uh, we're moving to the second part now, and so that should be interesting. Um, I, I noticed a little bit more this time through. There is there are a few weaknesses in the storytelling. Um, Bruno doesn't have much of a. There's not much of a backstory, and we don't really learn anything about his family. I kind of got the impression that he was an orphan, to be honest, but, but I don't know. That's that- mostly because it's just we, we have no mention of, of a life apart from Kamala. Right. Um, and then I felt like the, the motivation for the gen, at least up to this point in the story, feels really thin. The, the, for the motivation for why they are so turned to violence so quickly. Why they why they move from violence from you've got to help us to you've betrayed us and we're going to like come and attack you and just and kill people at your brother's wedding felt really abrupt and not believable. Right, right. Um, I feel like, and I also feel like the motivation for the um, department of what do they call them? Department of Damage Control. Department of Damage Control. I still find them hard to swallow. It's kind of, they they feel like generic anti-superhero bad guys without being fleshed out enough to feel real. Well, I mean, in the, was it the second Spider-Man movie where they were cleaning up after the Battle of New York and the Avengers? Like, you can imagine that after that, the government formed an agency to deal with the fallout of enhanced individuals causing problems. Okay. Department of superhuman affairs. You could even call it. Right. I'm just trying to figure out how that works. Like, is it a replacement of shield? Is this like, no, it's, I would say it's a part. Well, apart from apart from shield. I mean, like when you say damage control, it's really about cleaning up after them. Really? But, but, they seem to, but they seem their default mode seems to be there's a superhuman person. They must be up to no good, and we've got to stop them right. in any way possible. I would imagine. I mean, I feel like Shield is. Just, I mean, Shield is gone, so there's sort of the replacement for Shield. But calling them damage control really kind of betrays a certain attitude toward it. Like, you know, damage. The 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 main impact that enhanced individuals will have is damage. Right, and we're just trying to... And they kind of just end up being more, like, generic black helicopter, black SUV, you know, shadowy government Asians. Yeah, they're they're very non, non-developed. They're just kind of the bad guys. Right, they're a foil. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's not... That, that's all, not the great, the best part of this either. Right. But but I love Kamala, the character of Kamala Khan. I love her family and her friends. Mm-hmm. Like, while the bad guys all seem pretty flat, the good guys are delightfully well-rounded. Well, and so I can almost, I can kind of forgive the, the flatness because I'm really liking the, uh, the heroine so much. It is also the most faith-friendly show I've ever seen on Disney Plus. On any Disney thing, probably because it's Islam and not Christianity. Uh, but nevertheless, it's very faith friendly. I love the Imam. He is great. Yeah, he's he's just a very delightful, um, fatherly, paternal figure. 
was unlike pretty much any, well, you know, when you compare it to the inside man, it's pretty like pretty much unlike any Christian priest or minister that you ever see depicted on TV. Um, and I feel like they, they deal with the faith in, you know, the, the Islamic faith in a very respectful, respectful way. On on its own terms, that's the key. Is on they accept it for right. it's on its own terms. Um, and, and I like the way they deal with with Pakistani culture too. I mean, I as an outsider, I, I don't know what a Pakistani person would think of it, but I appreciate it as immersing me in the experience of Pakistani Americans and really pulling out that culture and that history. Right. Right. Including the great Bollywood dance number at the wedding. That was fun. <laughs> that was really good. So, um, what else? So that's, so yeah, so we watched the news Marvel and then, uh, so that's what we've been watching. I finished the second book of the Murderbot Diaries series, uh, which was good. Introduced a new AI character, which was fun. Uh, and it has really moved Murderbot into um, new territory. And I I feel like I didn't get a good sense of what this series was like, was going to be like from the way you and your sister described it. I, I feel like it's really hard to describe what it's like without kind of spoiling it like i was i was afraid to say too much because i didn't want to give away plot points and i feel like saying much about the character kind of gives away the plot i mean just to describe he's not merely a robot he's more he's a cyborg really they call yeah they call him a construct because it's not a a human being who has had a computer components added it's a creature which has been constructed of both cloned human tissue cloned human tissue and mechanical parts mechanical parts but it's not like not with an ai inside running everything right yeah. but, but not from a particular person like it's a created being right and it's not simply static in the sense of oh it's just a security guard it's 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 doing a lot more than that so yeah it's it's really interesting. And there's a mystery at the heart of it. It's trying to find out some vital information about its own origins. Uh, I won't spoil any more right. of that. Yeah. It's kind of a, a quest for self-knowledge series. Like, really, that's sort of the, yeah. the main driving plot. There's a, there's a mystery it's trying to uncover. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I know it's good. It's good. Yeah. I, I mean, it's I like it so far. It's the, to, to, for me, it's really what, what works is the the narrative voice yeah it is you know that first person narrator and it's snarky and it's so a little bit self-deprecating a little self-aware of its own social and ineptitude um does not really like it's it's very uh what is the i was misremember the word doesn't like people like what's the word for that um misanthropic he's is somewhat misanthropic and yet there's a soft spot in his heart for people too like, I don't like people, but I also, you know, want to help them to. Also, I really, really like TV shows and people make TV shows and therefore there must be something good in people because they make the TV shows that I like to right. consume, but which I, is a really interesting. Yeah, but I prefer the people in the TV shows to real people. <laughs> I wish people were like the people in the TV shows. Yeah, it was it. It's interesting. It's interesting. 
And there's, there's in this world that it inhabits this universe. I get the sense that people don't understand how much more self-aware and self-actualized the AI bots are. There's a whole subculture of the bots who are, they're not trying to take over. They're not, you know, anything like that. They're just, we're here. We know what we're capable of doing. We're going to have our own little society underneath the human one, just as long as you don't notice. Well, in fact, one of the funny threads that goes through it is that all of the human dramas only show sec units as like rogue killing machines. And it thinks that's funny because sec units, that's not actually what we're like. Right. There's this this whole like, oh, no, here I am. I'm a rogue sec unit, but I'm nothing like what you expect me to be. Right. Right. It's a funny ongoing. There's a lot of subtle humor in it. It's good. And they're short. The the, the stories are short. Until you get to, I think it's the fifth out of six, which is a full length novel. Okay. And then it goes back to a novella in six. Okay. So you're reading, or you just finished a book. I finished uh, My Name is Asher Love, which is uh, the current book for the Close Reads podcast. Uh, I'd never read it. I tried to start, I tried to read another Chaim Potok book, The Chosen, a couple years ago, and I didn't get very far. The Chosen starts off with a baseball game. And, you know, me, I'm not really a sports person, and I really couldn't get past the baseball to into the, the characters in the story. <laughs> so, my name is Asher Love, though. The protagonist is an artist. This is much more my speed. Um, so, it starts off as a sort of portrait of the artist as a young man, um, a la James Joyce, except that the artist in question is a young Hasidic boy in Brooklyn. And um, his father and mother both come from these very old and prestigious Hasidic families. His father works directly for the Rebbe, who is the leader of their Hasidic community, um, and goes on special missions abroad, primarily to Russia. Um, it's set in the 50s, so it's post-World War II, and it's interesting in that it's very much a child's eye view. Um, mm-hmm. So we start with Asher at five or six, and we really don't, he doesn't understand the world, and he can't tell us any more about his world than what he, the child, understands. And yet he has this artistic gift where he sees with an art- artist's eye very clearly and remembers what he sees. Like he's got this incredible visual sense. And so it's very interesting in that it's got the naivete of a child and yet something more. Um, it's a brilliant novel. I really just loved this point of view character. I loved the insights into art and into faith and the intersection of the the world of art and faith. And yet ultimately what happens is that the protagonist is almost obsessive about his faith. In fact, I felt at times he almost felt like he was supposed to be (coughs) autistic and art was his autistic, like, 
special interest. Okay. Like he was almost not interested in anything outside of art. And it was really hard for him to do it well at school in the yeshiva because he didn't want to do anything. He didn't really care about Torah. He only cared about art. Um, And so his father, this is incredibly alienating to him. And his father just does not know what to do with him and just wants him to give up the foolishness of art. And he can't because it's an essential part of him. And yet, interestingly, the Rebbe sees it as a gift from God and yet sees that there is not really a place in the Hasidic community for someone with this gift. And so the Rebbe actually connects him with an artist who's Jewish, but not Hasidic and not a practicing Jew really. Mm-hmm. And gives turns him over to him for training as an artist, which creates this huge rift between Asher and his father. And so it's really interesting. It's It's a novel about, family and faith and art and the ways in which we're broken and in which art can be at sometimes sort of a healing and a way of dealing with emotions, but it can also be this obsessive compulsive thing that is almost destructive. Like there's almost a destructive element. Um, He tells you at the very beginning in the first paragraph, so this is not a spoiler, that he paints a crucifixion. And really part of the crux of the story is why does this Hasidic Jew who never really stops, he doesn't become an atheist, he doesn't stop believing in God, he doesn't stop praying, like he continues to be observant. Why does a Hasidic Jew feel a need to paint a crucifixion? And so there's this fascinating, as a Catholic reading it, I understand the rift which painting a crucifixion creates between him and the Hasidic community. And yet to me, it feels like his artistic intuition, which says that a crucifixion is the only way he can paint the truth of his experience and his emotions, is getting at something really deeper than perhaps even the author can really Mm. touch like as a person of faith i believe that yes the crucifix is something more primal deeper than anything else like so he's getting at something through the art that's speaking more true it's a great book one of the best books i've read in a long time so Mm. i highly recommend it Um, and an easy read i read it in like a day and a half i couldn't put it down well, you're a fast reader, too. So um, we've been going at this a long time, so I don't want to take too much longer. But you said you wanted to mention a YouTube channel you've been watching? Oh, yes. Uh, for my watching, um, I found that one of my favorite poets, uh, Malcolm Geet, um, has a YouTube channel. I stumbled upon it, and he has the most delightful presentation. Uh, he is... This delightful old man who looks rather like a hobbit. He's got long, flowing white hair and beard, and he smokes a pipe. And, um, yeah, he would have got along really fine with Tolkien and Lewis and the the Inklings, I think. Um, and so each episode begins with whoever is operating the camera uh, knocking on his study door, and he invites you in as a friend. And he talks to the camera, to the viewer, like 
a friend who's dropping in for a visit and he's going to tell you what's going on in his life, what's on his mind, what he's been reading, what he's been writing, where he's been traveling. And then he reads you uh, mostly mostly a poem or two uh, once he read a bit from a Hilaire Belloc essay and just kind of talks about faith and poetry and art and the people involved. And it's just it's kind of delightful. Um, and books. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm really loving it. And uh, it's kind of like a nice, comfy fireside chat with a, with a friendly uh, poet. Uh, Malcolm Geet is a priest in the Church of England. And uh, I think he also teaches like at Oxford, or he at least he does lectures. He travels all over doing poetry readings and lectures and things. Um, He's he's really quite fabulous, and he has really lovely religious liturgical poetry that I've enjoyed. So hmm. uh, look up his books of poetry, and uh, his YouTube channel is really great. He's nine years older than I am, or ten years older than I am. Really? <laughs> he's a, he looks like a little old man. That's going to be me in ten years. I think it's mostly the white hair. Like yeah. he, he is one of these people who has like just snow white hair, which um, will make one look older. Yes. <laughs> she eyes my graying <laughs> hair. So, um, uh, so not that elderly, I suppose. Yes. We should say. So uh, let's talk about the feast of Christ, the King. The, uh, because of my ailment, I didn't go to mass with you guys this morning. I didn't want to spread the plague. So uh, I watched the Catholic TV mass and Father Tom McDonald was the celebrant who has a very interesting, almost formal, but friendly style to the way he celebrates mass. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's unusual, um, his style, but his homily was, was interesting. So he was talking about how he starts by talking about like, you know, the, the recent death of Queen Elizabeth and the accession of um, King Charles as Kings on the minds of English speaking peoples. And he's saying, if you, if you went to Buckingham Palace and you sat in King Charles's throne or tried to wear his crown, you know, you'd, you wouldn't be allowed. Um, and he said, you know, earthly rulers guard their power and their glory. They're for them alone. And, and I, I'm not sure Charles would necessarily put it that way, but, but he's making a point, Father, Father right. was. He was saying, Jesus Christ isn't like other kings. He gives his kingdom to us. He shares it fully with us. Earthly rulers, they hold the power. But Jesus gives the power to us. You know, earthly kings send others to die for them. Our king dies for us. He lets us sit on his throne. His kingdom is open to anyone who calls out to him in faith. Um, and he, he says, when we are baptized, his royal power filled our hearts because when we were baptized, we were baptized into Christ's kingship, right? As well as his priesthood. Um, and his authority comes from within. So the, the a rule, earthly ruler's authority comes from without upon us. It's imposed on us. But Jesus' authority comes from within us because his throne is within our hearts. Says many, there are many ideologies in this world that want our loyalty, but only Jesus deserves our first loyalty because only he gives himself fully to us. All the earthly ideologies want us to give ourselves to them. But Jesus 
gives us gives himself to us as as our ruler. So I thought that was a very good homily. It was good. You can always um, watch the Catholic TV uh, masses on their uh, YouTube channel. So did you have any thoughts you wanted to share on this week's? Uh, I I will confess that while I thought that Father Emmanuel's homily was really good and I took some notes, um, there wasn't a whole lot coherent that I I noted. It was good. Uh, I just can't report on it. But I wanted to share that the first reading really struck me today. Um, And uh, it's a reading from... Second Samuel. The second, yeah, Second Samuel. And it begins, In those days, all the tribes of Israel came to David in Hebron and said, Here we are, your bone and your flesh. And that struck me because it's obviously an echo. <laughs> it's obviously an echo of Genesis 1, where God creates Eve and Adam looks at Eve and he says, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Mm. And so the, the people, the, 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 the Jewish people, the tribes of Israel are coming to David and they're repeating the language of Adam. You are our bone and our flesh. As king, he is more than king. He is the bridegroom of the nation of the tribes. Right. But also then they proceed to make a covenant with David. Um, In days past, when Saul was our king, it was you who led the Israelites out and brought them back. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and shall be commander of Israel. When all the elders of Israel came to David in Hebron, King David made an agreement with them before the Lord and they anointed him the king of Israel. Now, I'm guessing agreement is probably more aptly covenant. Yeah. Because that seems really weak compared to bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Whereas a covenant isn't just an agreement. It's about a familial bond. And the language they're using is the language of the covenant. Right? Yes. I was just looking it up. See what um, So, yeah, I was just really struck by that beautiful imagery of um of david's kingship as being this bone of my bone flesh of my flesh relationship and then christ of course is also of david's bone and flesh because he is the direct descendant of david and then so then when jesus comes as king he makes a covenant with us as the bridegroom. And so you get this beautiful parallelism of David as the bridegroom and Jesus as the bridegroom. And both kings. And yes, the bridegroom and king. Oh, Scott Hahn does agree with you, but I just looked it up. Uh, that it is covenant there. Uh, by their covenant with David in today's first reading, Israel's tribes are made one bone in flesh with their king. By the new covenant made in his blood, Christ becomes one flesh with the people of his kingdom the head of his body, the church. We celebrate and renew this covenant in every Eucharist, giving thanks for our redemption, hoping for the day when we too will be with him in paradise. Yeah, I just, I, I've always loved that that language, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Yep. And so it, it jumped out at me today. Nice. Excellent. So that should be a good pl- way, place to 
bring a halt to this day's proceedings. Uh, before we go, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including John K., Chris, Joseph F., Ronald S., and Austin T. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Raising the Bets in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Remember to like Raising the Bets on the StarQuest Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media. Retweet us on Twitter at sqpn and leave us comments wherever you find us. We love to interact with you. Until next time, I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Star Wars. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars.